Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 95 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a fascinating show lined up for you today. This week, um, I was fitted with some Invisalign teeth straighteners. Uh, Maybe it's a midlife crisis, who knows, but I decided to get my wonky teeth straightened and expect to have a mouth that even Simon Cowell would be envious of in several months' time. So I may have a couple of kind of Chris Eubanks moments during this episode. Um, And for those of you that are are unaware, uh, Chris Eubanks is a former boxer who has a slight lisp um, and was a guest presenter on the old TV show Top of the Pops on the BBC here in the UK. And yes, uh, he got to introduce former Madness frontman Suggs singing his song Cecilia. Next up is Suggs singing Cecilia. Uh, that was that was affected, by the way. Um, um, from here onwards, uh, uh, none of it is. OK, so in a short while, I'll be sharing with you this week's interview with my guest, Jules Lalonde. Uh, then we'll have this week's hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. I'll also remind you about our major competition running that anyone with an interest in hypnosis will love to hear about. Just one week remaining for that. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Jules Lalonde. We'll be talking about primary affect and affective continuity. Really engaging stuff, fascinating stuff. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. Um, As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, please do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode on the, on, on the website www. Um, www.hypnosis-weekly.com it's just hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle .com you can add your thoughts comments make any suggestions there too please do share this podcast on Facebook Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community it's greatly appreciated if you enjoy this podcast, please do give us a favourable rating, even a review at iTunes. Um, you know, I'll be a BFF if you do. And it takes just a few seconds, a couple of clicks to give us a favourable rating and does us a world of good. Um, so first of all, today is this week's interview with Jules Lalonde, based in Canada. Um, we actually recorded this podcast way back. I mean, it seems like an age ago, back in February of this year. Um, and it's going live now in October um, of that same year. And 
Knowing the sort of continual student that Jules is, um, um, there's probably much that he'd like to add since we recorded this. Um, we recorded it back when the podcast was having a break. Um, it's an episode that I'm really excited to share. Um, Jules and I talk about a great subject in the second half of today's show, um, something not covered here before, and I hope you'll find it as stimulating as I did. Um, before then, we have our usual interview uh, with Jules. And, and well, I mean, I, mean, I say... Um, um, and I use the word usual. And that's not something I'd say about Jules. Um, you see, despite his own background, where he's probably really familiar with, with big thinkers and those who think critically within a professional field, I tend to think that the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy needs more big thinkers and critical thinkers and those who explore, seek evidence, and on occasion challenge the received wisdom. And I saw and, and continue to see Jules do that online in a very diplomatic and considerate way. And it made me really want to have him on the show. He has nothing to sell, no hidden agenda, and therefore really examines this field in a neutral way, an objective way, and one that I, I enjoy and appreciate greatly. So for now, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to welcome this week's Hypnosis Weekly guest, the one and only Mr. Jules Lalonde. Jules, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Hello, Adam. Thank you very much. I appreciate um, the offer, the, the invitation. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm, Jules, just clue us up with regards to, to, to who you are, where you're at. You know, tell us a little bit. How did, you, how did you develop an interest in the field of hypnosis? What is your background? And, and how have you arrived at these dizzy heights of being my guest on this podcast? <laughs> That's a great question. And one I asked myself uh, when, you, uh, when you invited me to join you today. Uh, I don't think I have a typical background for many of your guests. I'm uh, a biochemist by training who did some work in complexity research. I, my day job is not as a hypnotherapist or a hypnosis trainer or as a coach or therapist at all. My day job, my profession, is as a certified financial planner. Mm. Uh, I'm here in Northern Ontario, Canada, where I run a pension consulting and financial planning firm. I'm uh, semi-retired at the moment, uh, working three days a week, and my genuine interest as a student is in the field of mind change work and hypnosis is a, a central tenet of that. But to get to the, the background, it, it's a bit of a convoluted tale, like many of us. Yeah. I'm, um, I've always wanted to be a scientist. I, some of my earliest memories were people saying, what are you gonna be when you grow up? And my answer was consistently throughout my, my upbringing, I'm gonna be a scientist. Yeah. So. Uh, through schooling, I excelled in the, in the sciences and earned top honors and was given many awards. And in my third year of my biochemistry program, I was approached by a physical chemist who had just joined Laurentian University named uh, Dr. Baltasar Aguda, who at the time was becoming a little bit famous for his mathematical modeling of complex enzyme behavior. I know it's a pretty boring topic, <laughs> but what he brought to the table was a way of taking something quite complex, like the behavior of enzymes, and giving us quantitative tools to analyze and predict behavior that could then be tested with experimental processes. Mm. So 
I was recruited because I was the top student in the biochemistry program heading into my thesis. And he wanted to bring a biochemical rigor to his mathematical analysis. Yeah. But before taking me on as a student, he hired me for a summer session to complete a, um, a literature review of the entire field. Mm. And once, once we began to piece together what was already known about a spe specific topic that he was interested in, which is how do cells divide? And in particular, the eukaryotic cell cycle. How do cells divide? It seems like a, a big question or a simple question. But it turned out that there was a lot of academic data already available talking about the biochemical network that triggers cell division. And this, of course, is very, very important because uncontrolled cell division is one of the primary killers uh, cancer. Yes. So as a biochemist, not a physical chemist, uh, I, I have a solid background in mathematics, but certainly not like the field of complexity where it's all mathematics. And in that program, I was sent to study at McGill at the Center for Nonlinear Dynamics and Physiology and Medicine that's run by two wonderful academics, Leon Glass and Daniel Kaplan, mm. who took the field of complexity, which is a, a mathematical modeling of of, of the universe, and applied it specifically to the dynamics of metabolism or disease or more complex behavior such as social behavior. Mm. So I got a chance at that time to study with some of the finest in the world who at the time, again, this is the early 90s, it, it was uh, a groundbreaking area. Yeah. And throughout that process, I learned that a lot of our common knowledge or common concepts around science are, are slightly flawed in the sense that when someone learns a chemistry equation, they run the equation and it seems as though it stops at some time. And it does because we're looking at what's called equilibrium. Yeah. But life itself and most complex matter here on earth is not at equilibrium. The systems are functioning at what's called far from equilibrium. And when systems function far from equilibrium, new and really incredible features emerge from relatively simple systems. So the field of emergence, which is a common topic that I think many people misunderstand, it, it is something that I, I was grounded on. And the other is that the mathematics of explaining complex systems is nonlinear. It's not a linear process. Yeah. This understanding leads to several different interpretations of what others consider to be difficult subjects to study. And I, I know I've just shot off on a tangent there, but please forgive me. What I did take from that experience yes. was that things are much more complex than we might presume. And that the way we describe the subject matter that we're studying is often flawed because it begins from a flawed premise in the mathematics. So this went on. I, I was doing a master's in biochemistry under Dr. Aguda, and I messed up. My personal mm -hmm. life at the time 
went through a crisis. Yeah. I separated from, from uh, the woman I was living with at the time. And I found myself right before defending my dissertation um, with my daughter as a single parent. Mm. And uh, my own emotional turmoil led to a breakdown in my relationship with my supervisor. So here I am, you know, young, single parent, uh, running out of money and trying to decide where my future will go. And somebody suggested that I, with my biochemistry background, I should probably take marketing and get into pharmaceutical management. And, and I took that decision. I jumped over from the master's in biochemistry. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, because I wasn't even a good technician. So technically, I was a biochemist, but I was a theoretical biochemist, and that doesn't help you run a lot of the, the assays or, or the different tools in the lab. So I transferred over to an MBA in, in marketing originally, yeah. and I was introduced to a young professor who studied options trading, and I, I got assigned to him as his TA, and just thrown in with the wolves, I had to teach basic investments to the commerce students. And I, I still remember this like it was yesterday, and it's been well over 25 years now. I, I walked into the professor's office, and I said, this stuff you want me to teach, it's wrong. So the, the basis that I was asked to teach was the fundamentals of investment science, yeah. uh, Apple asset pricing model, the efficient market hypothesis, things such as that. Right. But the underlying mathematics of that field is purely linear. They're, they're a linear equation. They sort for linear relationships. Mm. And from my background in complexity, I intuitively knew that that could not possibly be usefully used to describe the dynamics of complex systems like markets with multiple participants. Right. Yeah. And it reinforced... The idea that if your modeling of what's out there contains flawed assumptions, then the output of the modeling is also flawed. Yes. So that's what led me into, because Dr. Asobavi, the professor I was working with, he reminded me, he said, Jules, those models you say are wrong have been used to, have been widely used and Nobel Prizes have been awarded for them. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but it's wrong. It must be wrong. And like a good scientist, my, <laughs> my, my professor said, if that's the case, prove it. Yeah. And that's what led me down the field of behavioral finance. Mm. And I think this has a lot of application to some of the, the academic wars that you bring up in your discussions about state versus non-state or the sociocognitive versus the, the more entrenched, uh, older ideas in, in hypnosis. In the field of finance, we had a similar type of battle going on for the last 50 years. And that battle was between the simplified models that led to conclusions, that was well accepted by academia, it was put out from the University of Chicago like crazy, and all of the research that began trickling in showing that these models were false, were suppressed, argued against, placed as an anomaly, uh, all kinds of things that you've seen in the same history within the field of hypnosis. 
so from there, I, I learned that I wasn't the first to claim that this was false. My, I was able to find lots of other researchers around the world who were already doing work in behavioral finance. And that got me into the work early on of um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky yeah. and people like Rob, Robert Schiller and into the field of, of social behavior and consumer behavior where it's quite clear that humans are irrational beings. We do not make decisions based on rational weighing of the pros and cons to optimize our utility. That's simply not the way the human animal works, and it's been well quantified. So f from there, you know, I, I, I developed a, a thesis in behavioral finance, proved that the trading models based on the, the, the old style were not accurate, could not predict outcome, yeah. and began changing the way I would present investments to clients. Mm. But through there, I <laughs> excuse me. Through there, I, I went into the industry where sales in the in the investment industry is highly. Uh, how can I? They were pushing early NLP models to the sales groups. Right. So it's through there that I was first introduced to basic concepts of NLP yeah. and the, the Tony Robbins of the world and and eventually flowed back through to decide I was going to learn this. this, But it always came with a bit uh, of a bad taste in my mouth. Sure. It felt like manipulation rather than making it easier for others to understand. So it's this mixture of behavioral finance and my own inquiries as to what controls my subjective experience that has eventually led me into change work and hypnosis and uh, the related fields. So sorry about that longer tangent. But, no, uh, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, uh, um, um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating um, um, that, that, that of, of, of all the routes in, you know, you, you were not wrong when you said, you know, that your story is probably not typical of, of the guests that I have on the show. Um, um, so, so since, since then, um, and with your own, with your own exploration, let's just talk a little bit, you know, with regards to where you're at, with regards to hypnosis, and then we'll talk a little bit more about your influences in a short while. How, how do you explain hypnosis then, and and or, 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 or how do you define it, and how have you arrived at that, and um, you know, how do you explain hypnosis to to either yourself or people that ask you, or you know, if you get cornered in the kitchen at parties, and you know, and 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 the, and the conversation begins. Um, where are you at with regards to hypnosis and how you explain it? Well, the uh, I, I often don't explain hypnosis, mm. and I try not to use that term specifically. Sure. Um, I, I, I discuss people's subjective experience, and I use the metaphor of a holodeck, that we each have our personal holodeck that we're walking around in, and our brain-mind creates that experience for us. And then I'll get into one or two areas with which we, we have some information about how our neurology creates these experiences and where it can be flawed. Um, but my working model of hypnosis is more closely aligned to the definition given by James Tripp, where it's the use of language and communication to direct attention, um, lead cognition, seed ideas for the purpose of altering the perceptual reality. Mm. And that seems to be the one that 
that resonates the most with me, that seems the most open. But I also recognize that all efforts to define a process or a phenomena, you can have a very simplistic definition and someone could say, yes, that's it, because they find an area that fits that definition. And others, and myself as a, a typical mismatcher or challenger of ideas, I always see the exception. So I don't even hold that there has to be a purpose to hypnosis. To me, it's a phenomenon of human communication. Mm -hmm. And the biggest examples of hypnosis that I see, and I know this doesn't fit many people's definitions, is marketing and television. Mm -hmm. where they are definitely influencing someone's perceptual reality and oftentimes influencing their behavior without a critical assessment of that information as it's coming through. And to me, that is as much hypnosis as a stage hypnotist doing a direct induction. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Um, now, 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 you mentioned, you mentioned, um, um, you know, both, both on air and off air, um, um, a couple of a couple of areas, but I, I'm going to be really interested to to, to hear. Um, 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 tell tell me a little bit. Who are your major influences as far as uh, the field is concerned? Um, um, have there been any books or any authors that have taught you most? Have there been any teachers that have been more influential upon you? Um, and could you tell us a little bit about about the reasons why, perhaps even? Yes, I as I was studying NLP, I, I was a member of uh, Jamie Smart's salad program and yeah. a vast consumer of whatever I could touch. And of course, through there, we're introduced to Richard Bandler and Grinder and the early work in NLP and how that started to cross over into hypnosis. But one day in one of the programs, Jamie Smart, where he was teaching hypnotic storytelling, uh, mentioned this program by Igor Letohowski called Conversational Hypnosis. Yeah. And I was fascinated by the idea of a looser form of hypnosis that could be used in day-to-day -day conversations, and in particular in my professional life. Yes. And uh, through that introduction, I signed up for his ongoing program, and, I, and you've just been one of the interviews with the masters. Mm. Uh, and through there, was introduced to people like John Overdurf, Stephen Gilligan, Stephen Brooks, uh, and a much broader field than any one instructor. And I've followed those threads throughout, even though I haven't had a chance to study directly with many of them. Mm -hmm. But most recently, it's been through my access to Facebook that I've been introduced to people like Jorgen Rasmussen and James Tripp and Gary Turner, Greg Calvin, many of your guests, Felix Economakis. And each and every one of them has been wonderful with both their time and information and experience and sharing their views of hypnosis, change work, the mind. And that discovery or development over the last five, six years has been just wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but unlike many others, uh, I do not run a hypnosis or hypnotherapy practice. I am at best a student, certainly not a teacher. And, uh, but I think I see things a little differently than the masses. I, I'm quite critical in the sense of critical, not in slamming an idea, but in really challenging an idea. Yes. Because in, in behavioral finance, 
what we've learned about the human mind is that, uh, and you've written about this many times, is that we are we are subject to behavioral biases, heuristics, and non-logical thinking yeah. that governs much of our awareness. So that one of the tools we teach our clients and that we employ ourselves in our practice is that as soon as we begin to form an idea or a concrete model, we actively challenge it and try to take the opposite or opposing position and try to prove the opposing position. Mm. And that flows back to my early training in science, where one of my greatest professors, Dr. Goldsack, a brilliant material scientist uh, in physical chemistry, <coughs> held up the textbook at the first day of class. It's this gigantic textbook, Principles of Phys Physical Chemistry, mm. that had the last 150 years worth of material science. And he held it up and he said, here's our textbook. It is filled with lies. Mm -hmm. The only problem is us old people believe them and we're looking for the new generation to challenge them properly. Mm. And he laid out the idea that proper science is never complete, that all models that we have are provisional given the information available. Yeah. And that if new information requires that we update the models, then it is our obligation as true scientists and, and to follow our inquiry and find other explanatory models that better fit the data. Yeah. So this idea of not being stuck on one model is fundamental to anyone doing academic research if they allow themselves to realize that we're too quick to come to conclusions and we have to take action in order to prevent ourselves from being overly biased. Mm. Mm. I, um, I, I, I love that. I love this um, idea of, you know, you, you know, you know, here is the book, it's full of lies, but us older generation believe them. Um, and it's, it, it, you know, that, that serves as a, you know, I'm, I'm not a big one for metaphor, um, um, but that serves as a, a really lovely metaphor for, for much of the way in which I perceive the field of hypnotherapy myself. Yes, and I, I, I've gathered that from your... I've only begun starting to study your work, Adam. I'm not one of your students in the college um, yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I really, appreciate, I really appreciate the positions you've taken, including that of being remaining curious and challenging our ideas and not being so quick to settle in on one ex explanatory model yeah 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 which I, you know which i think is um, um it's, it's not always the easiest to do so um um but 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 i think very important for the field in general which um you know large swathes of the the hypnosis and hypnotherapy field professional element are, are very entrenched in a particular stance that is unyielding, unwavering, and um, you know refutes any other, any other, any other position or stance, or, or, or and it is not really receptive or, or ever exposed to anything that challenges it. Um, so, just tell me, you know, throughout your exploration, then, and throughout your exploration, and throughout your studies. Um, um, what, what's impressed you most about hypnosis? Has there been a, an application of some kind that that that's really impressed you, or is there, is there anything that you've you've either witnessed um, 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 online through your through your studies or in real life that you've found you know particularly impressive? 
Oh, I, I'm constantly impressed by some of the, some of the people that I'm meeting and and the stories that I'm reading and and including what I've experienced personally. Mm. So the the most dramatic effects that I think shocked me early on before I realized the power of the mind was suggestions of hypnotic suggestions or studies early on of of being burned by a cigarette with just a suggestion the skin beginning to blister those types of effects that have been recorded in the literature and I, I was very fortunate that when I decided to start studying this a little more closely uh, right here in Sudbury, Ontario, we have Dr. Michael Persinger at the university, and I went back to audit a bunch of his classes. Hmm. Uh, Michael Persinger is, you know, famous slash infamous for his God helmet, where he creates a perceptual change in experience just based on a small amount of magnetic pulses to the temporal lobe. Hmm. But I got a chance to 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 study with him and be in his lab for a period of time and. Early on, in early 80s and 70s, they were doing what today would probably not be permitted with the ethics committees, where you're making nocebo suggestions and seeing the physiological responses. Mm. That I find incredibly powerful and important to remember that our suggestions, whether we intend them to be or not, can be quite detrimental to people if we're not cautious and aware of what we can do with suggestion, mm. if that suggestion meets their expectancy and is and is accepted uh, in my personal life uh, i'll be blunt as as i became quote unquote successful in financial services uh things seemed to line up you know i met a, a wonderful woman we have children together she had a child before we have a beautiful family a house on the lake everything appears to go well but about six, seven years ago, I also felt myself becoming more, more and more uh, flat in my affect, uh, and a slow depression was creeping in. And for the life of me, I had no idea how that could be happening. But I also barely recognized that my competency in my professional practice no longer drove any real curiosity. I, I had mastered those things, and they no longer fed my need for for seeking activity. Yeah. And I started to look into mental health types of questions to figure out what was happening with me. And my most impressive individual experience of hypnotic processes was I was a demo subject with Igor Ledahowski at one of his hypnotherapy certification programs. Yeah. And at the time, I thought that my problems were that I needed to leave my profession because it didn't do it for me anymore and become a hypnotist or leave my profession and become a coach. Mm. And and it was in this demo where I was the subject that all of that dissolved and I realized, wait a minute, it's it was there's no need to run away from my life in order to be happy. It's just to understand what else I do need. And that experiential knowing that yeah. comes from a deeper a deeper understanding of what how your mind is forming things was incredibly powerful and it and it perhaps altered the course of my life and I can't underestimate the power that that's had we're having this discussion today because in part I I was up on stage with Igor 
Mm. So, uh, I, I, and I, I really do want to give him credit for perhaps even saving my life. Things, things had gotten quite dark for a while. And I didn't let anyone else around me know um, because I'm a professional and I'm supposed to have everything together. Mm. But throughout those years, it's amazing how once I started to see the world differently, and in particular, where did that feeling go that, I, that I've had my entire life? I've had this drive to know, this, this, this curiosity about everything that feels really good. Mm. So I started to study that feeling. And I learned that, you know, as far back as the 1950s at McGill, James Olds, when he began doing electric shock within the deep brain of, of, of rats, discovered at the time what people called the brain's reward center. Mm. It's since been refined, and we now know that it's not a reward center, but it is the dopaminergic system in the brain stem that triggers exploration in mammals, in, in, in all creatures, actually all vertebrates. And it's been relabeled by a wonderful affective neuroscience researcher that I've been following a lot, the late Dr. Jack Panksepp, as the seeking circuitry. Mm-hmm. Later on in biochemistry, we know that that's the dopaminergic systems yes. that trigger off alertness and, and uh, exploration of the environment. All living creatures, in order to be able to meet the resource demands, require some urge or driving force to go out and seek. And that is the fundamental pleasure center of the human being. And when dopamine levels begin dropping, for one or many reasons, at, at the far end, when dopamine levels and the receptors aren't working, you're in coma, and where levels are completely out of whack, you have manic-type behavior. So I, I began studying the neuroscience behind those systems to better understand what was happening within me. And that's yeah. led to you know, multiple tangents in different areas but it's allowed me to settle on a model of our subjective experience that is highly colored or tainted by the emotional affect underlying that current dynamic in the brain. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. Um, um, you know, I could, I, could, I could carry on listening to you discussing that. Um, um, that was thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, um, you know, typically at this 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 stage of <coughs> of the interview, I say to people, you know, when um, uh, we, if you were to go back to when you started out as a hypnotherapist or as a hypnosis professional, um, and so on, um, um, obviously this is it's a slightly different way in which I'll 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 ask you this question, you know, um, um, rather than you know when you started out as a hypnosis professional, you know when you started out just exploring these fields based upon, you know, how extensive you've been and how rigorous you've been with your exploration, is there, is there anything you would do differently within your, your exploration? Would you, would you go in any different directions? And is there any advice you'd give that younger you with regards to direction um, 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 that you'd consider extending to people that are tuning in and listening to us speaking today? Yeah. For me, <laughs> because I was noticing a subjective experience of pain or lack of enthusiasm, yeah. and then when I began to look at hypnosis directly, 
and listen to the the early teachers that I was brought into, I I dropped my critical thinking. Uh, I purposely tried to just experience the subjective experience of different environments, of different ideas, and just absorb everything as though it were true. Yeah. And many years later, uh, I still had this idea that if I just dropped my critical thinking, I could be as happy as those people over there who apparently suck it all up without any thinking. Mm. And it was a good friend of mine, Johnny Dupre, who one day I mentioned that out loud. If I could just drop my critical thinking, I'd, I'd, I'd be in the right zone all the time. And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean? Your ability to think rationally is a gift. And it should be explored within everything you're trying to do. And it gave me permission to be myself, this this critical mm-hmm. thinker who's got some significant science background, to reapply what I've been taught with a critical thought. And then the learning, uh, others can judge whether I've learned anything, but then the learning seemed to quickly accelerate because I did not have to completely absorb everyone else's models. I could allow my mind to flow to the areas within the model that appear to be flawed, that don't match the other uh, empirical research that I'm aware of, and that I could evolve those models much quicker. Second, I I would tell myself to hurry up and buy Jorgen Rasmussen's uh, provocative hypnosis much earlier on in my my discovery. Uh, I've become friends with Jorgen, and I've got to tell you, he's one of those examples that I wish was my first introduction because he is absolutely fearless in exploring ideas and consequences and will go out and do it right away and then learn from the feedback that comes from it. So that's the one the one thing I wish I had had a little bit earlier was a few years earlier if I had had a copy of his book and been able to reach out to him I think uh, my own progress would have uh, would have increased exponentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's great, Jurgen. Um, um, I um, I wish I wish I'd have had that same advice that you received there much earlier, um, um, or, or or in fact that someone had just impressed upon me um, um, the value of of of, of adopting the, the the critical mindset and introduced me to it much earlier. Um, you know, I was I was I came to it far far too late. Um, um, for my liking so you know it was really refreshing to hear that um, now Jules people that are listening um, I'm guessing that, that, that some people may want to get in contact may even want to ask you stuff or may want to know uh, where they can go to hang around in the places where you hang around and obviously you, you, you don't have a website you don't have anything to sell um, 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 so, so is it just a case of <coughs> track you down in forums in the Facebook or, or what, do you, what, do you, what do you suppose yeah, I can give. I can leave my email address. Uh, yeah, I can put it on this episode. Um, um, I but can honestly, it. for those in for those in the hypnosis world, the change work world, that like to connect with me, please just friend me on Facebook. I'd be very happy to have you join, or reach out to me directly through Messenger. Those are things that uh, I do in my spare time and love the engagement. I love to hear different voices and different opinions, and in in particular those who want to challenge the positions I've taken yeah that is where growth takes place and I and I truly do believe that development occurs through interaction 
not in isolation. Yeah. So yeah, please friend me up and I'll be happy to, uh, to communicate in that way. I wish I could say, come see the, the, uh, my website with the blogs, but honestly, that's not something that's uh, terribly interesting to me at the moment. No, sure, sure, sure. So I will put a link <laughs> to um, um, to Jules on Facebook over at this uh, episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly uh, website. Um, um, we'll be back with Jules in just a few minutes' time. Stay tuned. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Uh, more from Jules in a short while. Um, on to this week's hypnosis in the news stories then. Um, um, and this week, there, there's pretty much only one story that's, that's grabbing the limelight and is being covered by a great many differing news outlets. Um, and it revolves around the US Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and accusations being made against him about sexual misconduct when he was a younger man. Um, it started um, um, with, with Fox News' Jeanine Pirot suggesting that the accusations um, may be the result of hypnosis gone awry. That is, um, Jeanine Pirot, uh, Fox, uh, Fox News host, uh, stated, I have never seen anything like this in my career in over three decades uh, working as a judge and district attorney. She said, I've never seen so many repressed memory cases in my life, especially against one guy. Now she goes on to say, my question is, if there's something awry going on, was there hypnosis? Are they using confabulation? So the Fox News host, um, Jeanine Pirro, has repeatedly suggested that um, one of the accusers in this particular case may have been hypnotized by, um, by her therapist back in 2012. Um, and despite this being Fox News, there's some slight sense in these concerns, as I'm going to discuss later on. So a few days later, um, um, one of the Kavanaugh accusers um, was Christine Blasey Ford. Um, I mean, she testified in court about her alleged ordeal and it received much global airtime for a number of reasons. However, what, what followed made this story even more relevant to us in the hypnosis world. So it was announced and shown um, that Christine Blasey Ford co-authored an academic study that cited the use of hypnosis as a tool to retrieve memories in traumatized patients. Um, um, and this was this was shared online heavily by uh, Margot uh, Cleveland, a senior contributor to the Federalist uh, uh, publication and online online website, um, um, and, and launched a theory dubbed by many as a conspiracy theory about Christine Blasey Ford. Um, and the academic paper um, um, that she that she co-authored is entitled "Meditation with Yoga." Group Therapy with Hypnosis and Psychoeducation for Long-Term Depressed Mood, a Randomized Pilot Trial. And it described the results of a study that tested the efficacy of certain treatments on 46 depressed individuals. And the study was published by the Journal of Clinical Psychology back in May 2008. Now, while the paper by Ford and several co-authors focused on whether various therapeutic techniques, including hypnosis, alleviate depression, it also discussed the therapeutic use of hypnosis to, and I'll quote, assist in the retrieval of important memories and to create artificial situations 
to assist in treatment. So online, this, the, the Federalist publication stated that Ford's paper cited a controversial, that's their words, controversial 1964 paper on the use of hypnosis to treat alcoholics and claimed that, and, and I'll quote, um, hypnosis could be used to improve rapport in the therapeutic relationship, assist in the retrieval of important memories and create artificial situations that would permit the client to express ego dystonic emotions in a safe manner. Now, I've examined the paper um, there's nothing majorly controversial about it. You know, it's not standout. Um, there were a number of papers that followed similar lines of thought. Um, it's a pretty good paper in some respects. Um, um, although, you know, it's it's from the 1960s. Um, um, it's pretty much dated and very, very superseded today. The, the study by Ford and her co-authors also used self-hypnosis to treat their randomized sample of patients. Um, um, and I'll quote from the paper, participants were also taught self-hypnosis to use outside the group for relaxation and affect regulation, as described by H. Spiegel and Spiegel in 2004. So this 2004 text by Spiegel and Spiegel, referenced by Ford and her fellow researchers, is one that I'm very familiar with and I've cited uh, before during my own research. And it discusses in detail the use of hypnotism and self-hypnotism to recover memories from traumatic episodes. And there are numerous areas where I think the paper is flawed and there's other evidence that refutes much of what is stated in that paper. But the authors did note that hypnosis as a means of recovering traumatic memories could also lead to the contamination of those memories. And, and I'll quote from the paper, patients are highly suggestible and easily subject to memory contamination, um, they noted. Um, and I've spoken about this on earlier editions of this podcast. I've also recorded a video whereby I question the use of regression in hypnosis, according to science. And there's a link to that video that I strongly recommend um, um, viewing if you are interested in, in exploring this, this further and really looking at the science um, around the subject of regression and hypnosis and so on. Um, so it's not known whether Ford underwent hypnotherapy uh, regarding her alleged assault. Um, I mean, she and her attorneys have refused to provide detailed notes from her therapists to the Senate, um, despite provoid, providing portions to reporters to the Washington Post. Um, and Ford testified under oath um, that Kavanaugh's name appears nowhere in, in her therapist notes. Um, however, it is interesting that the media, in particular the media leaning towards the support of Kavanaugh, are now, and you know, kind of correctly questioning the use of hypnosis in this way and highlighting the problems and flaws with using hypnosis to retrieve memories. Because there are undoubtedly problems and very real reasons that it should not be used this way. For me, it's a real shame to see one really kind of potentially problematic application of hypnosis being used to raise questions about the testimony of a woman who may well have undergone such a traumatic ordeal. As you would expect, however, there's, there has been rebuttals. Um, in one article entitled Pro-Kavanaugh Conspiracy Theory Suggests Christine Ford Hypnotized Herself into Creating False Memory of Assault by Kavanaugh. 
um, and that cites one of the uh, that they go on to cite one of one of her studies co-authors um, um, from, from the paper that she that she put together. Um, um, one of the co-authors who was granted anonymity because of harassment and threats surrounding Ford's decision to speak out um, um, and told Media Matters, um, um, this, this co-author told Media Matters that the claims being spread about Ford and the study are absolutely ridiculous, to use their words, and, I'll quote, the study had absolutely nothing to do with the creation of false memories or the creation of memories of any kind. And the co-author went on and added that Ford was a statistical consultant on the report, not a participant in the study, and she worked on the data after it was collected. Um, so, so, you know, much more sober um, there. And, and I mean, the Think Progress website also considers uh, this a right wing conspiracy and states the fact that Ford was just one of 11 researchers on the paper and as a psychologist would likely have been familiar with hypnosis techniques anyway, regardless of the academic paper. So those defending Kavanaugh um, are stating that there is a major lack of supporting evidence and corroborating accounts for Ford's claims. However, there's an equal lack of evidence that hypnosis has anything to do with anything here. And that's one of the points that I make often here on this podcast. The effect that the very topic of hypnosis has when it's used in the media, mainly because of the myths and the misconceptions that are spread about it, even by hypnotherapists, it, it makes the story more intriguing more, more, and, and more sensational. You know, I think hypnosis has the ability to enhance belief in false memories. And that is, um, um, that's, you know, that there's evidence out there to support that. There's, that, that there's, there's little direct and specific evidence that self-hypnosis can be used to do the same. But in principle, it makes complete sense. Um, if it were the case, you know, would you use self-hypnosis to purposely manipulate a memory in this way? I guess this is something only Christine Ford will know. But the main issue for me here um, um, is that the media use of the topic of hypnosis and an uneducated perception towards hypnosis is being used to press an argument. You know, agreed, the case being made about the problems of false memories with hypnosis is absolutely valid. But we don't really know, we don't even know if, if hypnosis was in fact use, used. And the link to the research paper is really tenuous as it stands currently. Um, um, go have an explore of these stories. It makes for some some, some intriguing reading. Um, there are links to these stories over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. Um, I wanted to offer a reminder about our competition, um, and the prize of which is a ticket to this year's UK Hypnosis Convention. A ticket for all three days and the gala dinner. All you have to do is give this podcast a rating and um, a review at iTunes, and then email me to tell me what episode of the podcast was your favourite and why. It doesn't have to be long. Uh, send that in to me. And you'll be entered into a draw, which I'll make um, in one week's time, just one week's time um, as of today. Go review, rate the podcast at iTunes, message me with your favourite episode and why. And then you'll be entered into the draw and you can win over £300 worth of UK Hypnosis Convention goodness. And like I said, the competition ends one week today. So next up, we have this week's professional discussion. And I welcome back uh, Jules Lalonde. Um, you would have got some good insight into the man and the brain that he carries around um, inside of his head um, during our earlier interview. And so now we progress on to his favoured subject um, of, of primary affect. And, and never fear, the first question that I ask him is, is, is what that actually is. So 
Here is this week's professional discussion with Jules A. Lalonde. Enjoy. So I'm back now uh, with this week's guest, uh, Jules Lalonde. And um, I'm, 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 this week we're going to be talking, or, or rather Jules is going to be talking about primary affects. Now, Jules, um, you know, off, off air, you've mentioned to me how, you know, this is not something that, that, that mainstream psychology, let alone the field of hypnosis, is necessarily very familiar with. So tell us, what, what, what are we talking about here? first of all what we're talking about here is the feeling of being the feeling alive. of being primary affects yeah primary affects are the mind brain or brain minds initial primary response that colors or provides a valence positive or negative to subjective reality reality into experience mm. as I mentioned this was first scientifically we, we first began to list out these networks using direct brain stimulation of different animal models mm. it's been growing since the 50s and there's a huge huge body of evidence supporting the ideas that I'm going to introduce today yeah but basically what is it that drives our behavior and I recall a uh, Several months ago, perhaps a couple of years ago, I was listening to something from Jorgen Rasmussen, and he asked his audience the question, where do you think that feeling comes from? And that really drove my activity into what is the biological nature of emotional affect or feelings. Mm. So in NLP, they teach that your all behavior is moving towards something pleasurable or away from something painful or, or negative. And biologically, that's exactly how our brain functions. Mm. These, I'm going to introduce seven affective, primary active affective networks that are supported by empirical data throughout multiple animal species and including in man. That seeking circuitry I discussed earlier, the drive to live, the reason that animals leave the nest to explore is itself a positive feeling. There is, there's something that it is to be driven by that. Mm. When Thomas Nagel talked about what it's like to be a bat in the early 70s, talking about subjective consciousness, mm. what it's like to be a vertebrate on this planet is to have an evolved motivational system that is driven by these positive feelings. And how do we know that it's positive? Because in animal research, there are two things you can do with direct brain stimulation. You can allow self-stimulation, the animal will self-stimulate, or you can allow through through your empirical structure, uh, uh, ex uh, excuse me, I'm messing up my words, the ability to extinguish the effect. So if animals will work to extinguish the effect, then we know they're having some kind of negative experience in their subjective reality. And if they work to gain more of it, then they're getting some kind of positive experience. And it's through that huge body of research that we now know that there are seven, at least seven, primary affects. And I'll just list them off first. Yeah. The first is the need to get out and explore, which is the seeking circuitry connected through dopaminergic systems. The other is play. Play 
or the interaction in mammals in a playful way is a very, very important part of teaching mammalian behavior to our, our young. And it is itself highly pleasurable. Mm. As you know, if you play sports that you enjoy or just watch your children or grandchildren out playing outside, they, it's intrinsically positive. Next, we have care. The maternal care that bonds a mother to its young, and primarily in mammals, but in some lower species before mammals, it's, it's well established as well, creates the bonding of social animals. And it is itself very, very pleasant. And finally, lust for reproduction, which most of us know is a pretty good feeling. Yeah. Those four positive affects govern much of our unconscious behavior in the sense that those are responsible for conditioning and learning. The behaviorists for the last couple, for the last hundred years have been doing some simple research where they condition events or outcomes to something else. Well, that method, the, the unconditioned response is the primary affect. Mm. It does it, it, we come prefab, we're born with these capacities and it's part of our, in, our inherited capacity yeah. to have a response and it's the foundation of all consciousness. So these four positive affect are the, the, the things we move towards that govern us moving towards. And we also have, as all other vertebrates do, three negative affective systems. And they are separate systems, and that's why I'm bringing them up right now. You have rage, which controls anger, defensiveness, and attacking type of behavior. Grief, which is the separation anxiety. When a pup leaves its nest and, the, and realizes the mother is no longer near, the pup experiences something intrinsically a painful experience that causes crying. The mother, after they've been bonded, actually feels pain of grief when it hears the, the, the pup's voice. Mm. This has been also well established and, it's, it, and it causes us a lot of pain in our life, this triggering of grief where we don't realize where it's coming from. So the, the three negative affects, again, were grief, uh, anger, and Fear, the most mm. primal one, that yeah. governs a lot of our associative conditioning. Well, those three separate systems, instead of just having one negative one, there's great utility in understanding how the activity of these seven systems govern what eventually become our subjective reality as adults. It's the series of conditioning of these primary systems that change and create general drives motivations, and idea of identity. Right. It's those things that govern what it is like to be human. And the better we understand the fundamental activity of these seven circuits, I believe the more usefulness we will have as change workers to move people from a problem position, behavior, or state towards something with enough resources to recode and change behavior in the future. Mm. And that is something I'd, I'd like to introduce to the hypnosis community is by, and, and it's something that's been very well established in, in fundamental neuroscience now. Antonio Damasio's new book, uh, what was it called? Uh, the Strange Order of Things, yeah. lays out how evolution of these systems 
is the basis of consciousness that we we call tertiary consciousness or autonoetic consciousness that we we have interacting with each other right now so one of the big ones is jack panksepp person who is most associated with this has been demonstrating empirically and he has hundreds and hundreds of incredibly well-cited documents yeah. put out in academia over the last 40 years and the reason it's been shunned by some in academia is that he came early to the realization that all other animals have consciousness feel pain sorrow and laughter and love and to many within the field of psychology and in particular the behavioralists were doing terrible fear experiments and pain experiments on animals to try to understand behavior they didn't grant the consciousness to animals so therefore the work that Panksepp and others have been putting out was really pushed back against it, it was pushed back against because it would mean that we should no longer be doing animal studies the way we are mm. there's huge implications for that um, most of Cognitive psychology and behavioral psychology treated human emotion as a cortical activity. Therefore, something that humans have and very few other animals would yes. have. Yeah. Well, that just doesn't hold up. That doesn't match what evolutionarily evolutionary biologists have been finding. And in fact, there's a recent book from uh, Todd Feinberg and John Malat that I recommend to people if they want to dig into the evolution of consciousness on earth, but their book, the ancient origins of consciousness lay out this history Oops. going all the way back to the Cambrian period, 500 million years ago. And it's by taking this broader evolutionary view and how it seems to have organized within these seven major circuits that helps us use, give us a framework for applying positive affect when it's needed to overcome a negative experience or reconditioning negative experiences with a different taint and mm. you've been great proponent of getting people within the industry to understand the constructive and reconstructive nature of memory mm. but i would argue that all memory is coded with a valence a positive or negative affect or some combination thereof and the problem behaviors are driven by problem conditioning in the sense that we have, we can create a positive or negative experience with a simple, simple thought experiment. If you think of your child, people who are parents mm. or a loved one, and really feel holding that person and perhaps rubbing their back or neck, there's a feeling that comes with that. Mm. To me, that's activation of the care network. And that positive affect has been shown to have a reduction in fear, reduction in grief or anxiety. Think of a child who's scared and you hold them. It doesn't take long. They begin to calm down. Yes. Well, we could do that with psychological interventions too. And I would argue, and I'm very interested in people saying, Jules, you're wrong and here's why. But I would argue that all successful interventions effectively recondition activation of one and one or more of these seven circuits mm. so i don't know if i've completely lost you with that no but... no no not at all you know i'm, I'm certainly um um the, you know the the, the the primary affective circuits that you discussed there 
um, you know, each time, each time you were you were explaining them, um, um, I was thinking, you know, these are th th these are things that are that that do very much have the potential to be accessed or 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 recoded, so to speak, with the aid of something like hypnosis. Yes, I, I, I'm a firm believer that hypnosis is a particularly useful approach to reconditioning. Yeah, and. And, and giving access to the creative capacity of, see, of the seeking circuitry, which is also quite pleasurable just in, in and of itself. Yes. But having people live a more pleasant subjective reality is something that, <clears throat> that I believe most hypnosis practitioners, regardless of their mental model of, of, of action, do quite successfully. Yes. That's why their patients leave different than when they came in. That's why their people that they have a chat with have changed after the chat. And I am not an expert in that area. I'm just now exploring all the different modalities that are within our field. And I'm seeing it through this lens, though. When there is a successful outcome, what has actually happened? And I think if you look at those quite closely, you'll see that there is new conditioning taking place. Mm. So, and we also know that it's rarely taking place purely cognitively. So we know bits of empirical data, like if there's a highly emotional response, our use of an ability to interact with the more cognitive centers of our neocortex is reduced actual communications reduced and it seems to be more automatic behavior. Mm. Well, that's exactly the purpose of these affective systems is to generate automatic behavior. And the learning that takes place from it is completely non non uh, experienced. No one experiences learning. They only experience the result of learning. And what I would suggest is by having a framework of these seven and using them purposely within our change work gives us a network to, regardless of what the issue is, it gives us a framework to apply positive resources when needed. Mm. I, I particularly like John Overder's model of the meta model of all change is you associate with the problem behavior or state, mm. dissociate them from the problem behavior or state, associate them to a resourceful state or or, or subjective reality, and then apply the resource of state to the problem. Mm. So that basic model of change is one that can be applied, I believe, more surgically, if we're first classifying the problem along the lines of one of these seven circuits. And it's rarely a problem of the positive affects. I imagine it's not that common that someone comes into your, your uh, clinic and says, I need help, I'm feeling too great. I'm <laughs> yeah. feeling too much love towards those around me. I am, it, it, it's not normally something that's a problematic, but yeah. often many of the problems that, that do show up in thera therapeutic contexts or in clinical contexts are related to excessive anger or expressions of anger, which can include hatred and vengeance and all kinds of associative conditioning, yes. fear or or dramatic anxiety related to, to fear and um, aversive type of behavior that prevents people from engaging with the world or grief and, and significant grief or panic 
connected to separation and the feeling that they don't belong, they'll never be good enough. All of those types of things present, but they are they are secondary conditioning of these systems that we all have. Yeah. And slight changes within there can take place in an instant, or they might require some new learning that could, could require multiple uh, interactions, or a different cognitive or psychological illusion type of model that can help us through there. So I'm I'm starting to see patterns, and perhaps it's just my own cognitive bias. I, I'm aware of that, which is why I, I ask for people to challenge everything I say, because yeah. it could help me through my own cognitive biases. But I do believe there is a solid, for the first time perhaps in the last hundred years of looking at mind, there is a solid neuroscientific basis for creating a framework based on these seven primary affects. Yeah. And... I challenge those who are out doing the work with people to think about that, to think we have four positive resources that are separate circuitry in the brain that could be applied to the problem states, that we could think about perhaps some of this behavior is just a little bit too much conditioning of grief and a simple uh, intervention like havening, which uh, early on when I started studying all these different modalities, I was using this framework of the of the seven affective circuits. And when I started looking at havening, my mind said, it sounds like you're just applying care or activating the maternal care networks when you're soothing somebody with touch. And then I learned that Jack Pangsep almost 10 years ago had written about these C-tactile afferent fibers, which are fibers that run along the hairy parts of the body that are connected directly to this care network and that, that do release the, the biochemical cascades associated with the care network. So effectively, when someone's scared, when a child is hurt or scared, we hold them, we tend to rub their head, their back and shoulders, and that's very similar to this therapeutic modality of ha- havening. So what I'm saying is there are both cognitive ways of triggering different activities that may be more resourceful. There are physical ways Get out and play, and oftentimes people, while they're playing, their problems disappear because you can't hold them both at the same time. And and there are direct suggestions and and stories and thought experiments that can be used to move people within and around these different circuits. And that is what recodes memory with the different valence. Mm. And once it's been reconstructed with the different affective valence, it is no longer the same. As you know, memory memory has changed every time we access it, but it's not just the details, it's, it's the coloring or affect connected to it that is most important when thinking about how this conditioning will affect future behavior, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, um, so, so exciting, exciting times, right? I'm guessing that lots of people um, um, wish that, that, that this, that, that your exploration into this happened a few years ago in order that you had some kind of a, a, a course or a go-to manual or something that you can offer people. Um, um, because, yeah, I was sitting there thinking to myself, ah, I'd very much like uh, like to, to learn a lot more now about, you know, about practically and, uh, and and understand some some more of the stuff underneath. And every book that you mentioned, I actually made a note of because... Um, um, I want to go and I want to go and read more about that myself now. Um, um, fascinating stuff. I will 
I will certainly be keeping my a, a, a cl some close tabs on you to see how this develops. Well, I, I am working on a few things. Uh, one, uh, in conjunction with a friend of mine from the University of Ottawa, I, I'd like to develop some basic scientific principles for change workers that I, I hope to release as a bit of an e-course sometime this year called Keep Science in Mind. Uh, I think it would echo many of the things that you are doing through your college and, mm. and calling for a, a more rigorous way to approach learning this information and using scientific principles as our, as our foundation. And I, I am trying right now to deliver this model in a quick training type of program. I have no immediate intentions of launching it, but, uh, with the encouragement of people like yourself, I, I think I'll uh, I'll double my efforts in that area to try to put something out within the next year, uh, because I do believe that those professionals that are out there dealing with clients every day might be able to run with this and get something new, and if so, then I'd be very happy to hear that even one person was helped by it, and if not, then I would expect them to challenge me on it and tell me where it falls apart so that we can refine and, and get better at understanding these things. So I do appreciate that encouragement and I will try uh, within my ability to get those two products out in the next year oh, uh, so that maybe we can expand on those that discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe you can return to the podcast to come and talk a little bit about that um, um, once they're out there at some point. Not that, not, you know, not that I'm wanting to put a deadline on it, <laughs> um, um, of but as we know, little little things like social pressure do increase <laughs> the response and uh, and get the juices flowing. So yeah, to speak. right, right. So you know, I'm going to set I, up a. I, I really appreciate that encouragement. An automated weekly email to 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 Jules from here onwards, saying, "Jules, any news yet? Um, um, any news on the launch? <laughs> any news on the launch date yet, Jules?" <laughs> um, but for I'm, those interested, I will I will give you several links yeah. to to the research body. I, I don't expect anyone to take my word for it. There is some conflicting data in the research, uh, meaning that there are different camps, much like there are different camps in the hypnosis field. And I'd be yeah. very happy to discuss with those interested uh, why I think one camp has missed has missed the boat or they're not considering yeah. data that's available. Yeah. But uh, I'd be very happy to create a bit of a list of links for people to follow and they can do their own research if they like. Brilliant. 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 I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, um, you know, I, I could have just carried on listening to you discussing that. Um, um, you've been very generous with your information. I really appreciate that. And, um, um, you know, I'll certainly be uh, keeping my eyes peeled and looking to invite you back onto the show um, um, as and when um, as and when you, 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 you have something to share you know, in this regard. Um, I'm Jules Lalonde. Thank you. Thank you for being this week's guest on the Hypnosis Weekly podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. I greatly appreciated the conversation. I really enjoyed that. Uh, it was lovely speaking to Jules. Um, I'm a very nice man on top of everything else. Um, I'm over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. There's a link to a video that Jules highly recommends, um, which 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 kind of uh, um, illustrates and explains much of of the things that, that he discussed here today. Um, if you want to advance your learning on that subject, go have a look at it. Um, 
So we're on to this week's evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. And the fact is this, um, um, with with October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month uh, here in the UK, our latest evidence-based uh, um, self-hypnosis factoid um, um, is, is all about that. Um, and, and though we need more randomized controlled trials, initial studies suggest self-hypnosis may well reduce emotional distress and enhance quality of life in breast cancer patients. Um, the authors of the study asked breast cancer patients to participate in one of three mind-body interventions. That was cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, yoga or self-hypnosis. Um, and looks to explore their feasibility, um, the ease of compliance, the impact upon the participants' distress, their quality of life, their sleep, and their mental adjustments. Um, 99 patients completed one of those three interventions. Um, results showed high feasibility and high compliance. So after the interventions, there was no significant effect in the CBT group. But there were significant positive effects on distress in the yoga and self-hypnosis groups, but also um, within the self-hypnosis group with regards to quality of life, sleep and mental adjustment. Um, and, and the authors conclude that, that mind-body interventions can decrease distress in, in breast cancer patients um, 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 with particular significance placed upon um, um, self-hypnosis. Um, more randomised controlled trials are needed to confirm these findings. Um, and there's a link to the research paper that's included on this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. And, you know, if, if you follow me on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, you can find masses of memes um, relating to studies whereby hypnosis has been used to deal with psychological symptoms of cancer sufferers. If you're interested in this subject, go have a look. I've shared lots of really good, credible research on that topic. Um, that's it for this week's 95th edition. Uh, not long till we're going to be in three figures. Um, um, I hope you found it enjoyable and stimulating as I did. I do have many more exciting guests that I'm going to be welcoming to Hypnosis Weekly in coming editions. Uh, we'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all remaining friends. Next time out I welcome Sue Washington to the show um, and she has some stories that you are going to love including one about sleeping with John Hartland, the creator, the author of the, the, the famed Hartland's Medical and Dental Hypnosis textbook. Um, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode of the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions so do please message me or add them to the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us reach the hypnosis field. Uh, and remember, send me in your competition entries. Uh, my thanks again go to Jules Lalonde. Uh, my thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. <music>